We're going to start uh, with uh, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. What page is that on for you folks? Uh, Roman numeral 2, the first test. 17. 17? All right, that's what I, I have too. Uh, let me uh, just go through some names here. I, I want to get to know you uh, folks. Uh, some of you I know, some of you I don't. Uh, is Bonnie Bradford here? Bonnie Bradford. <coughs> well, that name sounds familiar, Bonnie. Do you have family in the area? Well, no. Okay. The, uh, what's that? Brightburg Exchange? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tom Burkhart? Is that how to pronounce that name? Yeah. Good morning. Good morning. That works for me.
of our salvation, that we are a child of God and that uh, we can look forward to a blessed hope with the Lord's coming back for us to rapture us and to be with him. So, the tests of eternal life. The letter is divided into three tests. The first test is that of fellowship with God. And we talked about that last week. The first test, as you can see on page 17, is fellowship with God. And we mentioned that fellowship with God means sharing. The word fellowship has the idea of sharing in something. That fellowship means you share in something. And to have fellowship with God means you share something with God. And what John is saying in terms of how he's using the word fellowship is that fellowship means sharing in the life of God. Sharing in the life of God. Now, Ed and I, we, we can use fellowship in a different sense. I, I can use fellowship of having a close relationship with, with Eddie Martin. Sorry, Ed Martin. And if that's how fellowship is being used, well, I might upset Ed Martin. And that means our, our, we fall out of fellowship. But then I come to him and say, Eddie, I blew it. I'm an idiot. Would you forgive me? We can re be, have our fellowship restored. That's not how John is using the word fellowship in chapter 1. John is using fellowship in the sense of sharing in eternal life. Now follow this now. Eternal life is either something you have or you don't have. You can't lose it and regain it. So we shouldn't think of fellowship as we commonly think of it. We should think of fellowship as sharing in the life of God. That is, you either have eternal life or you don't. So when John goes through these tests, he's going to tell us, here's the test. <clears throat> the first test, the test of fellowship with God. He's going to say, okay, if you have fellowship with God, then this will be true. You'll confess sin, 1 John 1, 9. But what John does is he says, now, <clears throat> if someone says, I don't sin, <laughs> John would say, well, that person fails the test. And since the test is eternal life, when you fail that test, it means you don't have it. Those who confess their sins, John would say, they have the evidence of fellowship with God. They have eternal life. So he's going to present these tests. He's going to present them in, in uh, contrasts. Here's those who have it, and here's, so, and here's those who don't. And that's how we should understand how he develops his uh, theme in 1 John. All right? We're going to start with verse 5. <clears throat> I'll read it. Uh, but let me read the top of uh, page 17. The body of John's letter is divided into three major sections. Each section identifies a specific test by which the readers were to examine themselves and by this to gain assurance of their salvation. These tests were also designed to expose false teachers and to counter their influence. They fail the test. <laughs> Don't follow them. They fail the test. The tests themselves are composed of two parts. So there are three tests, and each test is composed of two parts. What are those two parts? There, is the, there are the ethical demands. Well, that means simply proper conduct. And there are the doctrinal demands. Well, that simply means proper beliefs. Eternal life is... Uh, evidence of eternal life necessarily involves both proper conduct and proper belief. So each of the tests that John gives us, and there are three, involve both here's how you ought to live and this is how you ought to believe. If you say you have fellowship with God and you're living this way, you pass the test. And if you believe this, you pass the test. But if you claim to have fellowship with God and you don't live this way or you don't believe these truths, you don't have fellowship with God. You don't have eternal life. All right? So each test, there are three of them, John is going to present those tests in terms of conduct and belief. Conduct and belief. <clears throat> the first test examines eternal life 
from the perspective of fellowship with the Father and the Son. Again, fellowship in this context refers to sharing an eternal life. As with the other tests, John begins with the ethical demands of fellowship, or how we should live, and then he transitions to the doctrinal demands, or what we must believe. So he's going to start with the ethical demands. This is how you must live if, in fact, you have fellowship with God. That's how he's going to start. <clears throat> so, fellowship tested on ethical grounds. The first division addresses the ethical demands that are the evidence of fellowship with God. In effect, John answers the question, what kind of conduct gives evidence of fellowship with God? John lists five specific responsibilities within the section that are the evidence of fellowship with God. It must be remembered that fellowship with God means sharing in the life of God, that is, sharing an eternal life. Now we come to uh, chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. Fellowship demands moral likeness. Now I put in parentheses, you, I don't believe you have it in your notes, but I put in parentheses, what do I mean, demands moral likeness? In parentheses, it means walking in the light. Walking in the light. All right? So that's the first moral or ethical demand of those who claim to have fellowship with God. They must walk in the light. By the way, I'm editing my notes. And if you'd like a copy of the edited notes, send me an email. Better yet, send Eddie Martin an email. <laughs> and I will send him the updated copy uh, before we actually meet. And you, and you can just send it to them if you'd like. Is that right? I think I just fell out of fellowship with Eddie. That's <laughs> 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 okay. John. So what? The first division addresses the ethical demands that are evidence of fellowship with God. In effect, John answers a question. So Arabic 1, John begins by identifying the basis for fellowship. He grounds that basis in the very nature of God. He then apl applies the basis first by describing those who fail the test and do not have fellowship, and then by describing those who pass the test. As he so often does, John applies these tests in terms of polar opposites. <coughs> he, does, he does this to make the difference between those who have eternal life and those who do not uncompromisingly clear. So he's going to present these tests here, the test of fellowship involving conduct. He's going to present those in, in, in polar opposites. If you say you don't have sin, you, you fail the test. If you confess your sin, you pass the test. All right? But he, he does that to make the test uncompromisingly clear. He wants to give his readers assurance of their salvation. He also wants to expose the false teachers. They fail the test. Don't follow them. Don't follow them. They fail the test. He does this in order to exhort his readers to continue to pursue the standards consistent with eternal life. So in giving us these tests, he's also at the same time exhorting us. So he says, if you confess your sins, you pass the test. But really, continue to do that. <laughs> you ought to be doing that because that is the test of those who have eternal life. Well, I read that and I say, well, I, I need to confess my sins. <laughs> I want to pass the test. So not only is it a measurement, it's also an exhortation. Does that make sense? It's both a measurement to determine whether you pass. It's also an exhortation. This is the path you need to continue to pursue. All right, the basis, verse, chapter 1, verse 5. This is a message, <clears throat> John writes, this is a message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. The message that the apostle has heard from the Son, the message that the apostles had heard from the Son had as one of its cardinal elements the very fact that God is light. As elsewhere in the New Testament, John is using light 
in its common figurative or metaphorical sense to refer to the dual concepts of truth and righteousness. To describe God as light, we're saying that God is absolute truth and God is absolute righteousness. Common figurative meanings of the word light. Truth, righteousness. All right? By declaring that God is light, John is affirming that God's nature embodies both absolute truth and absolute holiness. So much so, John adds, that there is no darkness or the opposite of light in God at all. All right? So that's the standard for this particular test of fellowship with God. The first ethical test has as a standard, God is light. Now, he's going to identify the person who fails the test, verse 6. He's going to identify the person who passes the test, verse 7. Let me read those two verses. If we say that we have fellowship with him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie, and we not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. All right? And now I'm at the top of page 18. Is that where you folks are? Where are you in your outline? Small b? Okay, again, mine's a bit edited, so you, you may be still in 17. John now applies the statement by posing two hypothetical situations that stand as opposites of each other. The first addresses those who would claim to have fellowship with God, but who walk in darkness. John uses the present tense to describe the walk or conduct of these individuals. These, their lives are characterized, present tense, their lives are characterized by falsehood and sin, darkness, the very opposite of light. All who would make such a claim of fellowship with God while having their lives marked by spiritual darkness, are lying, John says, and are not practicing the truth. In other words, they are not living according to the light that God has given in his word. In contrast, John says, those who walk in the light, the light in which God himself exists, have fellowship with other believers. Again, John uses the present tense to describe this walk. It is a walk or conduct that is characterized by light, that is by righteousness, and truth characterized. From chapter 1, verse 3, John has made it clear that those who have enjoyed fellowship with other believers are those who, in fact, have fellowship with the triune God. They are those who share in the eternal life that God gives through the gospel. John adds that those who walk in the light enjoy ongoing cleansing from sin. The means by which the cleansing is experienced is spelled out by John in verse 9. The basis for this ongoing cleansing, John states, is the blood of Jesus, his, that is God's Son, a reference to the substitutionary sacrificial death of Christ on Calvary's cross in making atonement for sin. So here's the first test of fellowship with God of eternal life. Are our lives characterized by walking in the light or are our lives characterized by walking in the darkness? We're defining light as truth, and righteousness. We're defining darkness as falsehood and unrighteousness. Now, I can look at my life and answer that question. What is the dominant characteristic of my life? Am I, is, it, is it dominated by walking in the light? Or is it dominated by walking in the, in the darkness? Now, John isn't talking about sinless perfection. He isn't. He's simply saying, as, as you look at your own life, what is the larger pattern? What is the larger pattern? Is your life characterized by darkness? Well, then, you, you, if that's the case, we fail the test. If our life is characterized by light, that is, by truth and righteousness, we, we pass the test. And I can look at my life, I, I, I suspect you can look at your life and say, well, I, my life is, by God's grace, characterized by light. It's not characterized by darkness. We'll come back to that point. We'll come back to that point. All right. Second test of fellowship in terms of conduct uh, demands confession of sin. I've got in parentheses ongoing confession of sin. The second of five ethical responsibilities John identifies that are the evidence of eternal life, or this is the second. The passage itself is composed of two parts. 
The first addresses the actual ethical demand, and the second gives the biblical or theological basis. All right, the demand or confession. As with the preceding verses, John introduces a series of hypothetical situations. If somebody does this, or if somebody does this. <clears throat> Number one, he begins with a negative example of one who denies human depravity. Two, he then turns to the positive example of one who confesses sin. Doesn't deny, but confesses. And three, he ends with a second negative example, in this case, of one who denies committing sin. The two negative examples counter heretical positions espoused by the false teachers. The positive example identifies the one who possesses eternal life and thus enjoys fellowship with God and other believers. <clears throat> Let's read those verses 8, 9, and 10. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, well, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Those who claim to have fellowship with God and yet deny their own depravity, that is, they deny that a sinful disposition or nature lies within them. If they do that, they deceive themselves, and the truth of God's word does not reside in them. God has declared that all humans are born with a sinful disposition or nature and are in fact enslaved to sin prior to conversion. Now I've got a passage here. I've, just, I've, I've edited that, so let me read that again and I'll give you my passage. God has declared that all humans are born with a sinful disposition or nature and are enslaved to sin prior to conversion. Romans chapter 3. I've got three absolutely wonderful grandchildren. I've got the fourth on the way, November sometime. As a grandfather, I love those little rascals. Now a female little rascal. Okay. <laughs> little rascalette. <laughs> but the scriptures tell me that my grandchildren, when they were born, had sin within them. There was a sin disposition or nature. I don't know what you prefer. I prefer disposition, but the person prefer nature. A sinful disposition or nature residing within. And in fact, scriptures tell us it's worse than that. Not only is there sin that resides within all of us when we are born, when we are born, we are actually enslaved to that sin until we are converted. We are enslaved to that sin. That's what Paul says in Romans 6. And these individuals are claiming not to have that sin in them, verse 8. And, and, and John is saying in verse 8, if that's what you're claiming, you are deceived, and the truth of God is not in you. All right, I go on. Furthermore, the sinful disposition, although dethroned in salvation, nevertheless is not removed until glorification or the receiving of the resurrected body. Let me, let me back up for a moment. We can speak of sin in three ways. We can speak about sin as, as a penalty. There's a penalty for sin. We can speak of sin as a power, sin, sin enslaves. Or we can speak of sin as a presence. Now, at salvation, at salvation, the penalty of sin is taken care of. Our sins are forgiven once for all, past, present, future, once for all. So the penalty of sin has been taken care of at salvation. According to, again, Paul in Romans 6, the power of sin, that enslaving power of sin, is broken at salvation. But the presence of sin continues. And that's why you and I confess our sins, because that presence, the presence of sin continues within us, and we continue to sin. But that, thankfully, that presence of sin will be removed when you and I are glorified. We receive our resurrection bodies. Now, I can look you right in the eye this evening. I'm, I'm telling you for a fact, I long for that. I absolutely long for that. I'm grateful that I, the penalty of sin has been removed. I give thanks to God. I'm forgiven. I'm clothed with the righteousness of Christ. I'm glad that the power of sin is broken. If I sin, I'd make a choice. I'm not enslaved. I long for when it's removed because I hate my sin. I love my Savior. 
I echo the words of Paul in Romans 7, oh, wretched man that I am. The things I, I, I want to do, I too often don't do. And the things I don't want to do, too often I'm doing. That's the presence of sin. That's the presence of sin. And these are denying it. On the other hand, those who confess their sins are given assurance that God, who is faithful and just, will forgive them and cleanse them. To confess means to acknowledge your sin before God. So I'm unpacking what does it mean to confess. So to confess means we acknowledge our sin to God. Both the fact that we have sinned and the fact that we are guilty of our sin. That's confession. I'm acknowledging that I'm I, I, I have sinned, and I'm acknowledging that I'm guilty. To confess also means that we repent of our sins and we seek divine forgiveness. That's all packed in verse 9. To confess. I acknowledge to God, Father, I have sinned. I am guilty. I repent. I'm asking for your forgiveness. That's what it means to confess sin. All right? Chapter 1, verse 9. As before, John uses the present tense to indicate that confession is something that those who have fellowship with God, eternal life, will continue to do as a regular, daily pattern of life. Such regular, ongoing confession of sin is the necessary evidence of eternal life. God, who is faithful and just in forgiving, has promised to cleanse completely believers who confess their sins. Let me pause it here. I jokingly tell my students in the seminary, if there is a verse I'm going to wear out in Scripture, it's 1 John 1, 9. <laughs> and I say, you know, as much of a confession that is, I'm going to wear out that verse. That's actually a good thing. Because John is telling us in 1 John 1, 9, that's what believers do. That's, that's the evidence of eternal life. You regularly confess sin to God. You don't hide it. You don't deny it. You don't love it. You don't cling to it, you confess it. And you do that regularly. So it's not so bad that I'm going to wear out that verse. Because John says, well, that's the evidence of eternal life. You do confess. We confess. Now, we just mentioned that when I responded to the gospel, when you responded to the gospel, our sins were forgiven, past, present, and future, once for all. So what's this confession of sin? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. I've got some notes here to help us understand that. The confession of sin in this verse is not addressing how one is saved. It's not. It's talking about someone who is already saved, confessing sin. Rather, it describes the on ongoing activity of the one who is already saved. The sins we commit as believers, as those who are saved, do not and cannot jeopardize our eternal salvation, period. Paul says in Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. No condemnation. <clears throat> cannot, do not and cannot jeopardize our eternal salvation. However, please note, they are not to be taken lightly. They affect, influence our assurance of salvation and if not confessed, bring divine chastisement and the loss of reward. I'm, I'm adding some notes here. They bring the lo uh, divine chastisement and the loss of reward. Now, I've, I've given you a handout in the syllabus on uh, the judgment seat of Christ where I deal with this issue, but let me see if I can unpack it. Scripture speaks of forgiveness on two levels. My grandson over there? <laughs> I speak better than I know. Scriptures teach, teach us uh, uh, that there's forgiveness on two levels. There is the forgiveness of the sinner at the point of salvation, where our sins are forgiven by God, past, present, and future, forever. And our relationship with God is now as a completely forgiven sinner clothed in the righteousness of our Savior. But Scripture also speaks of the forgiveness of sins within the family of God. Within the family of God. When my sons were younger and they would disobey me, they would sin against their father, wouldn't they? 
Now, they never ceased being my, my son. They never ceased being my son. But at that point, they became my disobedient son. Maybe I can illustrate it this way. <clears throat> forgiveness in the family of God, in the family of God, doesn't address the forgiveness that we have enjoyed in Christ at salvation, past, present, and future, once for all. These are sins in the family. You might recall the night that our Lord was betrayed. I haven't talked about this one yet here, have I? The Lord takes a, 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 a bowl of water and a towel. He starts washing the disciples' feet. You remember that? He comes to Peter and says, Peter says, wait a minute, Lord. I, I should be doing this for you. You're the master, I'm the servant. Lord, I should be doing this for you. The Lord looks him right in the eyes and says, Peter, if I don't do this for you, you're not one of mine. <laughs> that's a left argument. <laughs> Peter says, well then, Lord, if, if that's the case, not just my feet, Lord. Wash all of me. Now notice what the Lord says. He says, Peter, you are already clean. You're already justified. Your sins have been forgiven forever. But I need to wash your feet because as you live as my brother, or as my child, as my disciple, as, as, as a believer in me, as you live, you're going to kick up the filth of this world and I make provision to cleanse your feet when you do that. Well, let's, let's talk about cleansing within the family of God. I, I hope that's helpful. About the level of forgiveness in salvation, the level of, of the kind of forgiveness with a believer in the family of God. Two different kinds of forgiveness. And, and the forgiveness in the family doesn't at all jeopardize our sins as a family member does not at all jeopardize our relationship with God. We are, there, we are no longer under condemnation. We're given eternally uh, by God at salvation. But my sins in the family, if I sin, now I'm, I'm putting myself open. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, exposing myself uh, to uh, God's chastisement. I don't want that. I didn't like it when my dad disciplined me. I certainly don't want it when the father disciplines me. But there's also, if I sin, I'm going to, if I don't forsake it, now rewards are involved. I can lose rewards. I, I, I could be engaged in that which is wood, hay, and stubble versus gold, silver, precious, um, precious things. So, uh, sin as a believer, as a member of the, of the family of God, uh, does affect my relationship to God in this life, but in this life only. It hinders the favor of God and the joy of God toward me. It opens me to God's chastisement as a child of His. And it can cause me to engage in sinful works that I'm not going to have reward for at the beam of seat of our Lord. Does it all make sense? Do you have any questions about that? All right. Think about it. If you have a question, please ask. All right, go on. In contrast to the above, those who claim they have fellowship with God and yet deny that they have committed sins make God a liar and demonstrate that God's word is not in them. Here John addresses the counterpart to verse 8. These are claiming not to have committed sins. Again, by claiming this, they have in effect made God a liar because God has clearly declared that all men are sinners both by disposition and by act. By denying this, they show that they have never embraced the truth of God's word and thus are not saved. They do not enjoy fellowship with God because God's word does not abide in them. That brings us then to chapter 2. John wants to do two things here in chapter 2, the beginning verses of chapter 2. By acknowledging the fact that believers do sin. John wants to make sure that the readers know he's not condoning sin. He's acknowledged, well, we all sin, but he's not condoning it. And secondly, he wants to let them know, well, on what basis is, is uh, God faithful and just to forgive me? All right, so he's going to answer both those questions, or he's going to address both those issues. In 1 John 1, 9, John has identified ongoing confession of sin as the evidence of eternal life. In these verses, 
John accomplishes two things. First, he makes clear that by affirming the reality of sin in the life of the believer, he is in no way condoning sin. Second, he supports God's faithfulness in forgiving the believer's sins by identifying the circumstances surrounding the forgiveness. Addressing his readers affectionately, let's read those verses, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. All right? Addressing the readers affectionately as those who were as though they were his own children, John cautions them about what he has just written. His intent in acknowledging the reality of sin in this life of, and of believers was not to be taken as though he were making light of sin. Because of indwelling sin, John has recognized that believers have not and will not attain sinless perfection in this life. For this reason, confession is needed. However, the fact that believers will not attain perfection in this life does not mean that they should stop striving to overcome sin. Are you able to find where I am? Yeah. Okay. John affirms that while sin is a reality and confession is necessary, nevertheless his purpose in writing is to exhort his readers not to sin. The standard of, per the standard of perfection, don't sin, <laughs> is beyond the reach of believers in this life. Yet believers are to continually strive to reach the standard as a necessary part of, of their ongoing sanctification. Let me unpack that. We are told in First Peter that we are to be holy as God is holy. I look at that and I say, there's no way. <laughs> not in this life, not in the life to come. Does that mean that standard is, therefore, not valid? No. It's still a valid standard. It's still something I strive for. I strive for it because that's, God's design for me as a believer in pursuing sanctification, growing in the likeness of my, of, my, of my Savior. So here's the standard. Although I'll never achieve it, I still strive for it. All right? I still strive for it. Having exhorted his readers not to sin, John turns to address the provisions God has made for believers when they do sin. The first provision uh, that believers have is that believers have an advocate who intercedes on their behalf. The idea of an advocate is one who testifies on behalf of another in a court of law. Here the advocate is Jesus Christ. He is the altogether righteous one who stands in the very presence of the Father interceding on behalf of believers whenever they sin. This role of an advocate is actually part of the Lord's larger role as a believer's high priest. As a believer's high priest, and on the basis of his own sacrifice, Jesus has provided for the full and complete forgiveness of sins. And the Father has accepted the Son's sacrifice and has raised him and exalted him to his right hand. It is on this basis that the Lord intercedes on behalf of us who are saved. Thus our Lord's advocacy at the Father's right hand on the basis of his sacrifice cannot and will not fail. Now, that is a, a truth perhaps we don't dwell on sufficiently. Our Lord is our high priest. He is at the Father's right hand. That's the, that's the place not only of authority, but the place of favor. He is at the Lord's right, Father's right hand, and he's interceding on, on our behalf. Uh, the book of Hebrews says, He ever lives to make intercession for us ever lives to make intercession for us. So when we confess our sins, we can have complete confidence that the Father is going to forgive us as he has promised. Because our Lord is the one who is representing us as our priest on the basis of his sacrifice. And, he's, and, and he is the Father's true son, or unique son, and the Father always is pleased to do what his son, Jesus, asks him to do. All right, so there's the basis of that. Uh, I go on. Jesus clarifies, or John clarifies Jesus' role as a sacrifice to reinforce the effectiveness of the Lord's intercession and to identify the second provision that God has made for the readers. John declares that the one who is the believer 
one who is the believer's advocate is at the same time the one whose death is provided for the propitiation of the believer's sins. The concept of sacrifice and propitiation are frequently linked in the, in the Old Testament and New Testament. Sacrifice, propitiation. Let me unpack that. Now, I've got some uh, additional notes here, so you know, I'll, I'll be adding to what you have. Sin ultimately is an offense against a thrice-holy God. Sin creates guilt. That is, the responsibility for breaking God's law. That's guilt. And it creates debt. That is the penalty that God's holiness and justice demand. So when I sin, that creates my guilt, and it creates a demand of a payment. Sin also creates divine wrath, God's righteous indignation, over my rebellion and transgression. Thus God's holiness demands a just payment of the penalty to remove or expiate sin's guilt. Expiate simply means to remove. And to satisfy or propitiate. Propitiate simply means to satisfy. To satisfy divine wrath. John affirms that in the offering of himself as a sacrifice for sins, Christ has provided both, with the emphasis in this verse, on the removal of God's anger, propitiation. So let's uh, think about that. As a believer, as a child of God, when I sin, well, that creates a guilt on my part. I, I'm guilty for breaking God's word. And sin has a penalty. <laughs> and that penalty must be paid. Well, that penalty has been paid. It's been paid by Christ. So that when I confess my sin, God is faithful to cleanse me because that penalty has already been paid. And God, although angry over sin, his wrath is satisfied, propitiated. He's no longer angry against my sin. And that guilt has been removed or expiated. It's removed. All of that takes place as a child of God when I confess sin to God. All right? However, John does not stop there. He adds that Christ's death also served as the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. The contrast between our sins and the sins of the whole world can only be understood as a contrast between the sins of believers and the sins of unbelievers. Yet by saying this, John is not arguing for universalism. That is, that all are or will be saved. By referring to, Christ's, to Christ as the propitiation, John is specifically referring to what Christ's death has provided, a payment that his death has provided, not to what actually has been applied, the application. The application of the saving benefits of Christ's sacrifice, that the application is conditioned upon repentant faith. John's point is that Christ's death has provided for the forgiveness of sins, and those who have put their faith in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and thus have been justified, can be assured that our Lord's advocacy on our behalf will secure continuing forgiveness as a child of God. Now, you've got a handout. I want to go through the first couple of pages of that. So if you'll turn there, please. Let me set the stage for this, and I don't want you to feel uncomfortable about our discussing it. And I say that because, you know, good men disagree. Good men and women disagree on this. Right. So I recognize that. Uh, I think this verse that you and I just looked at, 1 John 2, 2, is a very strong verse to argue for a universal atonement, a universal payment. So let's go through the uh, handout here as I build, a, I, I build the uh, case here. I say, as recent publications indicate, debate over the design and extent of Christ's atonement continues. The debate may be conveniently divided between those who hold to a universal atonement, that is, that Christ died for all, and those who hold to a limited or particular atonement, that, that is, that Christ died only for the elect. You understand that the two different positions. Either Christ died for all, or Christ died only for the elect. All right? Those are the two positions. While recognizing the debate, a combination that sees a universal atonement in terms of provision and a particular redemption in terms of application appears to harmonize best with the evidence. Let me unpack that. Defining the atonement as involving both a universal provision 
and a particular application goes beyond the familiar expression, sufficient for all, efficient for the elect. What is meant by universal provision is that Christ's death made an actual payment for the sins of all humanity. This says more than simply that his death was hypothetically sufficient. All right? Next paragraph. On the other hand, what is meant by a limited or particular application is that the saving benefits of the atonement are applied only to the elect as salvation. In other words, there is a sense in which Christ died for the elect in a way that he did not die for the non-elect, a sense. So let's discuss God's purposes in Christ's death. God's purposes in the atonement <clears throat> must be understood as plural rather than singular. To restate the point, God designed the atonement with more than one purpose in mind. According to the evidence, the purposes include the following. Number one, the atonement provides the basis for common grace. What do I mean by common grace? All right, so I'm saying the atonement provided the basis for common grace. In Matthew 5, 44 and 45, the Lord states, But I say to you, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God's withholding judgment, and actually giving good gifts to the unrighteous, must have a basis in the atonement. In other words, God cannot arbitrarily act against his nature in not judging sin. God's holiness demands that he judge sin and judge it instantly. So how is it that God is not doing that? Well, I'm arguing that the atonement provides for God to withhold that instantaneous judgment and, in fact, to go beyond that and good gift, good, good, give good gifts to the righteous and the unrighteous. Let me, let me finish the thought here. Thus, there's a sense in which the atonement temporarily placates God's wrath towards sin so that he can act benevolently towards sinners in the giving of common grace. So that, to me, that answers the question, well, why doesn't God judge the sinner the, the moment he sins? After all, he is a thrice holy God. His nature demands that. Well, in some sense, the atonement provided a temporary placating of uh, that wrath against sin so that God can postpone his judgment and actually give good gifts. So that's one of the purpose, the provision of common grace. Two, the, the atonement provides for the universal offer of the gospel. In Acts 17.30, Paul declares, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men, a generic man meaning people, that all people everywhere should repent. The declaration, all people everywhere uh, should repent, is a command for all who come under the hearing of the gospel to repent and believe. The commands to repent and to believe are used individually and collectively in acts as the single saving response to the gospel. Thus, repentance and belief or faith are presented in Scripture as two sides of a single coin and as the sole condition for salvation. Uh, I'll just thought, think about that, uh, dwell on that for a moment. So, in Acts, when the gospel is presented, you'll hear them uh, direct their audience to repent. But then other times, you'll hear them direct their audience to believe. And in some cases, like in Acts 20, it's repent and believe. I see those as two sides of one coin as the sole condition for and saving response to the gospel. It's not two different acts. It's one act. It's repentant faith. In other words, true saving faith involves a repentance towards sin. And true repentance involves putting one's faith in Jesus, the Lord as one Savior. So repentance of faith, two sides of one coin. So this passage is telling us that God is commanding all who hear the gospel to repent and to believe. All right, let's pick it up there. <clears throat> While Paul could intentionally limit the expression all to mean all the elect, the context argues against this. Paul's audience is composed primarily of Greek philosophers who have gathered at Mars Hill to hear Paul's message. Furthermore, according to Luke's account, a number of those hearing Paul come to reject his message. 
since Paul, Paul's call for all to repent and believe is addressed to this audience, all must have in view all who hear the gospel, elect and non-elect alike. At the same time, the message that must be believed for anyone to be saved is that Christ died for their sins, not just that he died for sins. Paul states in 1 Corinthians 15:3 that an essential part of the gospel is that Christ died for our sins. Since God's command for all to believe the gospel means to believe that the gospel is true, and since God cannot command someone to believe as true that which is in fact not true, there must be a sense in which Christ died for all, because in this passage, the Father is commanding all to repent and believe. Thus, Christ's death provided for a universal offer of the gospel that includes the imperative for all to hear, who hear to repent and believe. Well, I hope you follow that thought. I know it's, I'm, I'm giving you quite a long explanation. But the question is, God is calling all people everywhere who hear the gospel to repent and believe, regardless. All. Paul's audience, composed of philosophers, many of them reject Paul's message. And by that, I'm assuming when he says that all of you, my audience, must repent and believe, he's talking about both the elect and non-elect alike. Some reject. I'm assuming those are the non-elect. All right? Well, to believe the gospel means to believe that Christ died for my sins. That's the gospel. The gospel isn't that Christ died for sins. The gospel is that Christ died for our sins, Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians. God is commanding all people to believe that message. But in order for God to do that, that message must be true. God can't, cannot command me to believe something that's a lie, a falsehood. Well, in order for that message to be true, Christ died for our sins, and he's commanding all, elect and non-elect alike, to believe that, that there must be a sense in which Christ died for all. Because that's the message God is commanding them to believe. Hope you follow that. That's the second purpose. Third purpose, the atonement adds to the guilt and punishment of the non-elect. John 3.18 writes, He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe, having heard, has been judged already. So it adds to the condemnation of uh, the non-elect by their rejecting of the gospel that Christ did, in fact, die for them. All right, fourthly, the atonement becomes the basis for securing all the saving benefits for the elect. John 10, 11 states, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This is followed by Jesus' promise in John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me, and I give them eternal life. They will never perish. Jesus links his giving his life for a sheep and is giving a sheep eternal life. His sheep must refer to the elect in that they are those to whom he gives eternal life. Thus there is a sense in which Jesus died for the elect in order to give them eternal life in a way that he did not die for the non-elect. Alright, it should be added that all of the purposes of God in his design for the atonement are realized exactly as God has designed them. All four of those purposes are fulfilled precisely as God has designed them. Now let's address two problems and then we'll be finished. Describing the design in this way counters a key argument against a universal atonement. The argument is stated to the effect that if, God's pur if God purposed Christ's death to pay for the sins of all, and all are not saved, well, then God's purpose for the atonement has been frustrated. Since God's purposes can never fail, there can be no universal atonement. Right, that's how the argument goes. However, as argued above, God has several purposes in the atonement, all of which are fulfilled precisely as God has designed them. Therefore, there can be no, excuse me, therefore there can be a universal atonement as defined above, and at the same time, no frustrated purpose in God's design for the atonement. We have identified four purposes for the atonement, and we have shown how all of those four purposes are fulfilled. There's no frustrated purpose. There's no frustrated purpose in the atonement. All right, in addition, because Christ's payment is both substitutionary, one in place of another, and vicarious, involving a third party, the debt is not automatically removed as it would be if the debtor himself paid. Let's just lock our minds around that. Who is paying the debt? 
Am I paying the debt as the sinner or as a third party of the Lord paying the debt? Well, it's a third party. Now, if the sinner pays the debt, the debt is removed. That's by definition, the debt is removed if the sinner pays the debt. If a third party pays the debt, well, now the judge can put a condition on applying it to the guilty because it's not the guilty who are paying, it's a third party payment. Let's go on. Consequently, God, God can and has placed a condition on the application of the saving benefits. The sole condition is repentant faith, a condition God meets or provides for, but only for the elect. This provision reinforces the gracious, gracious nature of God's activity toward the elect. Placing a condition on the application avoids the problem with double payment, another key argument against a universal atonement. The argument runs along this line. If Christ died for all, and all are not saved, well then those who suffer in hell are making a second or double payment for their sins. In other words, if Christ died for all, including the non-elect, why does God require the non-elect to suffer in hell, in effect demanding a second payment? Since a just God would not require a double payment, there can be no universal atonement. However, as argued above, guilt is removed and God's wrath satisfied only when the payment is actually applied. This can be seen, for example, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, and Paul's description of the elect readers, but prior to their conversion. Paul depicts the readers prior to their conversion as children of wrath that is of divine wrath, or under divine wrath, even as the rest of humanity. Although Christ's payment had already been made, God's wrath was not removed in the least for the readers until the point at which the readers exercised repentant faith and were converted. All right? So, God is the judge. Christ is the one who has paid the debt. But the Father has put a condition on his applying that payment to the individual. And that condition is conditioned by faith. So that that individual, even the elect Ephesian believers, are still under God's wrath even after Christ died. Ephesians was written after Christ died. They are still under God's wrath until they believe. So we have to recognize that there is a a division between what has been a provided, the payment, and what has been applied to pay for that individual and that and and their and their sins. All right. So to restate the point, a payment Christ has been made, but the judge God has placed a condition on the application of its saving benefits. As such, the non-elect never have the saving benefits applied and must pay for their own sins. Thus, there is no double payment of the non-elect in the sense that God accepts and applies two payments to expiate their sins and to propitiate his wrath. In sum, the atonement is both universal in terms of what has been provided through Christ's death and particular in terms of the application of the saving benefits to the elect. That's my whole shot. You've gotten both barrels tonight. <coughs> Everything you wanted to know, and maybe quite a bit more. Uh, did you have a question? I, I recognize good individuals disagree, but this is how I would defend my position. A universal provision, a particular application of a saving benefit to the elect at conversion. Any questions? Go back to 1 John 2 2. Page 21 on mine, I think probably 20 or 21 on yours. Take a look at verse 2. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Does anybody here have an NIV? It uses the word propitiatory sacrifice, atoning sacrifice. Yeah, atoning sacrifice. And that's a very good translation. It's talking about a payment that has been made. So when he talks about, and he is the 
propitiation, we could say he's the atoning sacrifice. That's how the word is often translated in the Old Testament. He is the atoning sacrifice. He's the one who has paid the debt. All right? He's the one who has paid the penalty. But John goes on and says, but not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Now, the only other time, please follow this now, the only other time that John uses the expression, the whole world, the only other time, is in chapter 5, verse 19. And everyone agrees that in chapter 5, verse 19, the whole world means elect and non-elect. And particularly in that passage, the unbelievers. All right, that's the only other time that John uses that expression, the whole world. I'm assuming it has the same meaning here. He is the one that's not only paid for our sins, but he's made the payment for the sins of the whole world. But it's conditioned in terms of its application based on repentant faith. All right, does that make sense? I hope that was helpful. I really do. I wanted it to be helpful, not make you upset. <laughs> Time's up. Time flies when we're having fun. Uh, I look forward to seeing you next week. I'm enjoying the class immensely. I'm so glad you're a part of it. Uh, I'm so gl- grateful for Pastor Ken inviting me and allowing me this privilege to uh, have this class on the evening. See you next week.